He literally had speakers in every village and he would just get on the broadcasting station and just talk about his thoughts on Marxist dialectic for hours and everyone in the country had to hear it. Ah, oh, that is disgusting. <laughs> you did this on purpose. I was done with communists. Then we had to go and watch Ali do it all over again in exactly the same bullshit ways it always is happens. That, is that amazing? Oh. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where my voice cracks all the time and where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, actually our main host for today, George. Say hi, George. Hey. That was good. He didn't just say hi. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their indi individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? We have the heartwarming tale of Bob Denard, a jolly Frenchman whose main hobbies were polygamy and revolution, which is pretty typical, to be honest. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've never heard of him, so I think it's time for us to go down to the history lab so I can actually learn what the fuck we're talking about today. Well, that is the point of the podcast, Aaron, to educate the ignorant. Yes, here we go! confusing post-colonial power structures that the illiterate gnomes who run this podcast can't understand, one mustache switched religions, overthrew governments, and said, let's do that again. So, Alan, I, I mean Aaron, if you had to spend an eternity stuck on a looping repeat of one year, which year would it be? Oh shit, ah, uh, ah, uh, oh man. It have it would have to be that that year where, man, I feel so tired. I'm <laughs> sorry, everybody. I'm completely out of it today. I don't know why, but here we are. Uh, if I had to spend a year on repeat, it would be uh, I don't know that day that uh, year that. Uh... Fuck, dude. Why can't it? you answer the question first? I'm fucked over here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I would say, for me, it'd probably be somewhere around 2013, 2014. I feel like that's been real life ended, and we were all stuck in this nightmare simulation. Ah, in a few yes. years, once society has totally collapsed, we'll be longing to recapture traces of the god-awful pop culture of those years as a relic of a pre-Diluvian world. I'm just, I'm picturing it now. Imagine using a stationary bike to run a generator to try to play some staticky bits of Gangnam Style discovered on a buried SSD. It is a it is a bleak future indeed. Uh, I've been thinking about it, and I think I'd relive 2012 again, because that was the year I went to college, and it was probably the most fun I've ever had in my whole life. So We're all, a little, we're all chasing that high. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, computer, please bring me a cup of coffee and bring up Bob Denard. Affirmative, my lord. So, George, what is Bob Denard best known for? Bob Denard is best known for participating in approximately 20 coups in addition to countless revolutions and civil wars all over the world. What did uh, Bob Denard 
look like? Well, he looks... Honestly, he looks pretty cool. He's he's an older dude. Um, medium height, a little bit on the tall side, but not freakish. He's got a sort of lean yet muscular and sort of stocky build. He looks like someone who could definitely throw hands and knock you on your ass if he needed to. Uh, he's got white hair, a little bit of gray, buzzed off on the sides and flat on the top. Very military looking. He's got this beautiful, thick, lustrous white mustache, like a happy nice. sort of grandpa. He's got these very sharp blue-gray eyes with a friendly twinkle overlaying a sort of fierce, oh. cold gaze. He's wearing a dark, mili- dark green military camo trousers and black leather boots, and he's got one of those dark green uh, military jackets with pockets all over it, but he has no visible military that insignia That seems significant anywhere. to me. So it's like Grandpa, but in Vietnam. <laughs> Wait, but Grandpa was in Vietnam. Ho-ho! Ho-ho! All right, so I have, like, no idea who this guy is, so uh, what can you tell us about Bob Denard's early life? Well, I wish I could tell you more, but it's really, really hard to say much about it. I'm kind of ashamed at how little I've been able to actually nail down about his early life. There's very little information available, in part because he used over 20 different aliases throughout his life, including Gilbert Bourgeaud, Colonel Jean Marine and Bob Denard. I'm literally so not. What? I literally don't know what his real name is because even in contemporary documents, it's inconsistent. Like one document will say that his birth name was Gilbert Bourgeaud and Bob Denard was an alias. Other will others will say that Gilbert Bourgeaud is an alias. So there's I. I think Gilbert Bourgeau is his real name, but I honestly cannot be sure. Wow. And uh. so that makes tracking down his childhood really difficult because obviously if people were to try to do that, you'd be running into trying to figure out what his actual name is. So you can kind of just piece together from later interviews and references and stuff, which is what I had to do. <clears throat> so you wrote you wrote an episode about... 20 different people, that's what you're telling Basically, me. 20 different people who we are collectively going to call Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So what I... Okay, what else can you tell me? Yeah, what I can tell you for sure is that he's born in the southwestern French city of Bordeaux in 1929, either, probably either on January 20th or April 7th. Both those dates are listed as his birthday in different documents, along with plenty of others, but those were the two most common ones. So I'm going to guess it's one of those two. This really is going to be a theme tonight. There are three versions, at least, of every single story about this man. And it's pretty much impossible to untangle it all and figure out the actual chronology and sequences. And this is aggravated by the fact that the people who would be in the best position to have real data, governments, aren't exactly eager to own up to what they know and why they know it about this man, as we'll see later on. So keep in mind that this is like a mosaic of little bits and pieces that I've tried to put together in the right order. Well, <laughs> Godspeed. <laughs> so, Bob's family was sort of lower middle class. Um, being that it's 1929, it's probably too late to use the term peasant, but I'm going to say peasant anyway. He comes from a peasant family. Uh, his father Good. was a non-commissioned officer in the French colonial forces. His okay. name given at birth... I'm not sure of, but I, executive decision decided I'm going to believe it's Gilbert Bourgeaud. It's really unclear when he starts using fake names, but probably pretty early on since it's almost impossible to dig up records about his childhood. 
Uh, he seems to have had a pretty normal childhood, went to school. At age 12, he finished up whatever that stage of schooling is called in France. And then he spent three years working on a farm and also learning forestry skills. Well, I think that's a logical next step after you get out of the uh, indoctrination camp. I'm just going to go work on a farm, learn how to live in the woods, you know. God, that sounds stuff. tempting. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, be, us being of people of the uh, homeschooling persuasion, we, <laughs> we grew up, I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely grew up ca calling public school an indoctrination camp. Fair. Fair. Yeah. The government. Anyway, uh, so when he's 15, he begins work as a mechanics apprentice at a garage in Bordeaux. And also fought okay. in the French Resistance during World War II. Um, wow. Seen combat not only in France, but also involved in combat in the Netherlands. So it's safe to say that he's probably a pretty tough kid. You know, his dad is in the military. He has this hardy mm -hmm. peasant background. He's literally a soldier at age 15. <laughs> Yeah, that's a tough dude. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not one to mess around. So, as soon as the war ends, he decides to join the military for real, since he was just sort of in the, you know, paramilitary before, and he joins the French Navy and spends a few years dredging the North Sea for leftover mines from the war, which, great first date idea if anyone's thinking about it. I was going to make a joke there that he dredges for leftover mines from the war and I dredge for leftover beeps from my lazy cutting from... <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to Ceausescu Part 2 today and I actually did create a, uh, a fixed version of it, but SoundCloud wouldn't let me upload it. I, I tried literally for like an hour to get it to upload. It would not let me replace the file. So I just like, fuck it. It's... it's it, it, basically a signature move on our show now to have a random beep while we're talking. It is indeed so. classic. Yep. <laughs> so after a few years of doing the mind dredging, um, in 1948, he does a course in military flight school, just because, apparently. He doesn't really do anything with that, but he does that for a while. As right, he's like yeah, as he's approaching his 20s, he's been in the military a few years, he follows his father's footsteps and enters French colonial military service. Um, nice. Not long into his service, however, he is badly injured by an accidental vehicle explosion, uh, which oh, leaves shit. him with extensive third-degree burns, uh, but oh, takes man. him out of action for a while. But after recovering, he actually comes to the U.S. on some sort of Navy exchange program to help get France's Navy back up to real country standards after World War II. Uh, so he, cool. yeah, he does some sort of exchange program where he learns about, like, American aircraft characters. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Gotta know all that shit. Yep. <clears throat> and so then after that, he serves with the French forces in Indochina. That's Vietnam, Aaron. Uh, in, oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, until 1952. And during that whole time, the first Indochina War, France's Vietnam War, literally, since it not only was, all, was in Vietnam, but also kind of had the same social effect, was going on. And he's, right. you know, there fighting in that. Until 1952. And what happened in 1952, you ask? Well, our man Bob got into a fight with a bar owner. We've all been there. <laughs> this is understandable. So what does he do? Oh, does he leave a nasty review? Does he maybe, you know, beat the man up? No, not Bob. Bob, oh, good. Bob calmly leaves, and then he comes back that night and burns the bar down with a Molotov cocktail. A-plus uh, <laughs> conflict resolution, Bob. I was going to say, you know, that's that's uh, that's 
conflict. That is conflict resolution. I, yes, absolutely. Sorry, we went from like him learning about battleships in the United States to him burning down a bar with a Molotov cocktail. You know, we talk about like covering people's individual character on this show. I don't know how to do it with this guy, and thank God it's not me doing it. Yeah, as I said, the, the, this early stuff, it's really hard because we just have, like, little bits and pieces here and there, and you're trying to figure out how we get from point A to point B. Yeah, so, unfortunately, Bob was kicked out of the military for this little misunderstanding with the Molotov cocktail. Aww. So he returns to France and begins the exciting life of a kitchen appliance salesman. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, talk about going out of the frying pan into the fire from the Vietnam War yeah. to kitchen salesman, appliance salesman. That's, that's, that's a hard change, It's too man. much for me. But this, shell this life soon proved to be too exciting for Bob, and so he left France to see if anything cool was going on in Morocco. Like you do? Exactly. <laughs> uh, to make ends meet when he gets in Morocco, he gets a job with a French construction company, because Morocco is still a French protectorate at this point. But right. that's not exciting enough for Bob, so he starts to look for other work. At this point, um, Bob apparently converts to Judaism, or at the very least starts claiming that he converted to Judaism. It's unclear if he ever actually practiced it. It seems okay. likely that he felt that being a Christian, since he was French and therefore Catholic, might be disadvantageous while trying to find work in a Muslim country. It's, un it's really unclear what's going on with Bob religiously. Um, well, I mean, obviously Bob is a man of the new age. He's he's a man of all religions. Well, as we'll see, yeah, pretty much. So, unsurprisingly, giving his giving his penchant for excitement, Bob starts working for the French colonial police in Morocco, and eventually ends up assigned to their counterterrorism division. Uh oh. Mm -hmm. Although. Um, at this point especially, coherent accounts of what Bob is doing are really hard to find. It seems like it's around this time that he starts to get kind of politically radicalized. Uh, more on okay. that in a bit. Right All at right. this point, France is undergoing the long and painful process of divesting itself from its monumental colonial empire. And so, to get a little bit of background on that, because it's important for the rest of the story, after their humiliating defeat in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, in which my great-great-grandfather participated, not on the loser Whoa. French side. Um, <laughs> France got really serious about gaining power and influence in places where there were no Prussians to, to curb-stomp them. So, they start really sending out their colonial tentacles. They had a few okay. colonies already um, around the world, but they were going to get a lot more. They were going to go big and not go home. Uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, <laughs> parts of China, Tunisia, the Ivory Coast, Gabon... Cameroon, parts of the Congo, and many other places were under French control by the 20th century. Interesting. During World War II, France, of course, kind of lost control of its empire, and although it was able to establish control again right after the war, things are never really quite the same. And through the 1950s, the process of colonialism, decolonialism, sorry, was really getting underway. And it was a super chaotic time with lots of violence and revolutions and counter-revolutions and bombings and assassinations, and it was really wild. But we're not going to get into that here, it's just important to know that that's the backdrop for Bob's uh, shenanigans. Decolonization is a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I have to say. You do it to yourself. Yeah, it's, it's rough. It's really rough. Mm-hmm. 
So, Bob was not happy to see the Empire falling apart, and he was starting to get really pissed about people in the government sabotaging the glory of France as he saw it. In particular, he really hated the Prime Minister of France, Pierre Monde France, who had, literally has France in his name, so it's no wonder he was the Prime Minister, <laughs> who was a member of the leftist Radical Socialist Party and was negotiating French withdrawal from big parts of its empire and the end to some of those of the colonial wars, including those France was fighting against communist revolutions. So Bob and his buddies in the police of French Morocco in 1954 decide that they're going to kill the Prime Minister of France. What? <laughs> oh god, you really did mean it when he, you said he got radicalized. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, it, it seems to have happened pretty quickly. Um, unfortunately, oh. this plan did not pan out, and the plot was discovered, and Bob was arrested for the conspiracy in 1956. But somehow, he only spent 14 months in jail. I absolutely could not figure out how this happened, whether his conviction was overturned for some technicality, or whether they could only convict him of, like, a lesser crime. But what? in any case, he's only in jail for 14 months for plotting to kill the Prime Minister, and in 1957, he's out of prison, and his career with the police is obviously over, being that he right. yeah, tried to kill the Prime Minister. But while he was working his way through the justice system, he made quite a few contacts among the French government and intelligence, People who may not have been super upset if someone was to have killed the leftist prime minister. And they're like, oh, you're regicidal. That's that's cool. We like that because we want to be the next rest. We're, in, we're into that. <laughs> <laughs> so Bob does what anyone would do in those circumstances. He changes his name and goes to serve in a different colonial police force, this time in Algeria. Classic. While he's there, he gets involved with the French military in Algeria, in Algeria, which is getting really on edge, with the left-wing government in France wanting to abandon its colonies and, in the perspective of the military, sell them out and lose everything they fought for. People aren't happy right. in the military. So this malcontent eventually culminates in what's called the Crisis of 1958, when the French military in the colonies, which of course is most of the French military, because that's where you need your military, and the French right. government in Paris have a nasty breakup. And without Dang. the backing of the military, the government completely collapses. And a new government <laughs> is formed by the military around Charles de Gaulle, the leader of the French resistance in World War II. It's unclear what exactly Bob was doing during this, but we know he was in Algeria and involved with the military that was launching this coup. Okay, this, is, this isn't confusing or anything, but... I had no idea any of this was happening, uh, or this ever happened. <laughs> That's how ignorant I am. Oh of this, no, of the mid twentieth century is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a deep set like automatic revulsion for anything around sixties, the sixties, late fifties, the seventies. I just don't like it. It's like, is that movie? Was that movie made in the seventies? I don't want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean that's fair. Yeah. But yeah. So, uh, this government, this new one, it saw that the end of the French Empire couldn't actually be prevented, but it wanted to do everything in its power to maintain as much French international power and influence as it could. They replaced the French Union, which was the legal successor to the French Empire, which technically was abolished after World War II, with something called the French Community, that maintained French control over its colonies, but gave them a little bit more autonomy and some extra stars on their flags or something. Um, 
So yeah, baby steps. Yep. <laughs> so after all this goes down, Bob returns to France for a little R&R and once again starts a completely boring and mundane career selling space heaters. <laughs> I really like how Bob, like, his downtime is downtime, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Were the space heaters just Molotov cocktails? <laughs> I mean, that would cut down on costs. Not a lot of return sure business, would. though. No. <laughs> so for a while, Bob seems like he's going to stay settled. But we know Bob better than that by now. By 1960, yeah. he has had enough of selling space heaters. So he decides to head out and return to the promised land for people who really like war, Africa in the middle of decolonization. Here we go. He arrives in Katanga, uh, meet, meeting up with other bored Europeans along the way and kind of ending up with his little group. Katanga was a region of the Congo that was inspired by the Congo recently becoming independent of Belgium, and it decided it wanted to become independent of the Congo. Okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Independence is a bitch. <laughs> so Bob and his boys are hired by this breakaway Republic of Katanga to train their army so that they'll be able to resist if the Congo decides to invade and try to take back the region. Now, the Congo is an absolute mess after independence from Belgium, with tons of chaos and violence, and things like massacres of white civilians who lived there were happening all the time. Um, all right, I read about different that. rebel groups. It was it was bad. It was bad. Over in Katanga, yeah. their leader, uh, Moise Chombe, realized that staying on good terms with white Africans would provide him access to potential officers and mercenaries. So he staffs much of his military with white officers and military-trained Europeans, like Denard. The Congo demands... <laughs> <A> space heater salesman <laughs> is now in charge of the Congo. The, the Congo oh, demands God. that... Sorry, that the Katanga region rejoined the Congo and they threatened to ask for Soviet help if the UN doesn't back its claims. Oh, God. And obviously, Western countries in the UN, they don't want the Soviets having a good foothold in Africa. So the UN helps the Congo wage a war against the separatist region of Katanga, and Bob and his merry band fight for the independence of Katanga. During this war, Bob participated in the siege of Jadoville, which was made into a Netflix movie. So yeah, that badass French officer on the bad guy side might actually be Bob Denard. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that movie. So there you go. See, you do know about Bob Denard. Yeah. <laughs> He's mis- phantasmically appeared in my life a few times before now. He's just that guy at the coffee shop you make eye contact with once, and then you can't look at him again. That's always Bob Denard. <laughs> every time. <laughs> So, this war continues for a few years. In 1963, Bob was part of a commando force which launched a surprise attack on a different rebel army which was surrounding the town of Stanleyville. In the town, there were hundreds of white civilians whose homes had been burned and had been forced to flee, and the rebels were actually starting to massacre them with machetes when Bob and his mercenaries arrived, like Gandalf and the Rohirrim at the Siege of Helm's Deep, like, rumbling in on jeeps and uh, putting an end to the massacre. Sorry, I just see like I just see like a jeep bouncing along through the Serengeti with like the French national anthem playing, and there's Bob Denard like cocking a fifty cal in the back. Basically, um, yeah. that raid was actually the basis of a 1978 film, The Wild Geese. Um, I've never heard yeah, of that fun movie. fact is about this raid. Um, throughout the war, Bob seems to have done things like this a lot, where he tries to help 
uh, the white population who are fleeing from massacres. Because when Belgium gained its independence, it was it was bad times for the the white population there, who was just you know they weren't running you know they weren't running anything. They had just happened to be born there because their parents were colonists and are just normal people. But once independence happens, thousands of them are getting massacred in absolutely brutal, brutal stuff. Yeah, that's so, that's one yeah. section of history I honestly have not. One, just one other one I haven't dug into very much, just because it's. You touch that one, you lose a part of your soul. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty awful. It's bad. So yeah, the Congo at this time, you have so many different groups that are fighting each other, and then about half of them want to kill all the white people in the Congo. About half of them want to fill their armies with the white people in the Congo. It's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Well, they're getting the best and brightest uh, space heater salesmen. Yeah. So. <laughs> so by the end of 1963, uh, the increasing military support from the UN doomed the Katanga Rebellion, and the region was annexed by the Congo, while European mercenaries like Bob made themselves scarce, since the UN was always trying to round up and detain mercenaries. So they headed over to Angola to take a breather and decide what to do next. At some point around this time, Bob's little band had developed such a reputation for warfare that they were nicknamed Les Affreux, which means the Frightful Ones, or, in a slightly better translation, the Ugly Ones. Oh! <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm not sure which of those I like better. Oh, God. Yeah, I... I... I think I gotta say the ugly ones is probably more descriptive of a group of mercenaries. Yeah. So after this, Bob decides he wants a change of scenery. So he takes a break from Africa and heads over to Yemen, where he fights in a monarchist resistance against the invading Egyptian expeditionary force, which was trying to bring Yemen into the fold of pan-Arab socialism with the backing of the Soviet Union. I get, I get, I'm getting like a common thread here that he's like not about the Soviet he, Union. Bob is not about communism. That's one thing that becomes very clear. <laughs> Bob is not about communism. I'm going to give Bob a, a, a bro fist right now. We're going to do a, a metaphysical fist bump. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so he, he just, I think he gets it. <laughs> he takes a break from fighting in Africa to go to Yemen to fight with monarchist tribes against Egyptians backed by the Soviet Union. Like, this is, this is some complex, this is like 6D underwater backgammon. Yeah. <laughs> so, after a year of training tribal forces and engaging in anti-communist guerrilla warfare, Bob heads back to France for a little R&R. Um, nice. Actually, I was sorry, I was going to have you do the honorable mention here, but I realized this is way too early. Okay, we can do it later. So, yeah, let's, let's postpone that. All right. You just pick when. All right, will do. So, <clears throat> Bob has gotten back to France. It's good time to rest. It's time for Bob to take a rest. But no uh. sooner had he taken off his boots and sat down in his easy chair when he gets a message from Tshombe, the Katangan leader he had worked for, who is somehow now the president of the Congo. As I said, <laughs> it's really confusing. That man was leading a rebellion against the Congo literally two years before and is now the president of the Congo. It's... Well, I mean, think about it. Like, last week, it was Ceausescu's entire regime going down in the space of less than a month. I mean, so yeah. anything's possible. History is wild, basically. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, Tshombe wants his help. It's hard to say how involved 
the uh, the French government was with Bob's activities. They definitely knew what he was up to, and they may have been using him sort of an unofficial agent, but there's no really no way to know for sure. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> so he's given command of a battalion by Tashombe, and he is fighting against communist Simba rebels who are led by Mobutu and are backed by China. The Simba rebels? Yes, they're called the Simba, Simba rebels. They are led by a man named Mobutu, and they are backed by China and the Soviet Union. Surprise, surprise. Oh, my. Oh, God. And they were an all-round nasty group who committed a lot of atrocities. But, now this is amazing. During this time, Bob led his troops against rebels who were led by none other than Che Guevara. How about because that? Because communists came from you know, all that... over the world to fight in these communist groups in Africa. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was reading about Che not, not too long ago. I'm wanting to do a good deep dive on him. Oh, God. Um, and then buy a t-shirt. <laughs> Because, doubtlessly, I will like that guy by the end of it, right? Everybody likes Che. There's nothing wrong with Che. Well, you know, I live right next to a university campus, so I can say everybody does like Che. (laughs) Oh, you poor bastard. (laughs) Well, I live in Austin, so they're all about the Che here. Press F to pay respects. So, that's what Bob's doing. He's fighting Che. But, our boy Chishombe loses power by 1966... And in the confusing web of Congolese politics, the rebel leader Mobutu becomes the new president. Okay, so the trick to becoming a president in the Congo is to go to war against to... the Congo. That's exactly right. Okay. And now, so <coughs> now he, Mobutu is the president and Tshombe is leading rebels. Bob technically still works for the government of the Congo and therefore Mobutu. But after one campaign against his former boss, Tashambe, he defects and joins Tashambe's rebellion against the government. Obviously, because Bob's not going to stay working for someone like Mobutu, who brought Che to the Congo. It's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah, and also he has a relationship with Chumbe. Yeah, exactly. So... Chumbe's his dude. So during this, this war, where he's now fighting against the government, he is shot in the head during a battle <laughs> with... You read, it, you read ahead, didn't you? No, no, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's just the way you said he was shot. <laughs> so, he was shot in the head during a battle with a North Korean regiment. Uh, because the North okay. Koreans have also sent troops to support Mobutu. So, Bob is shot amazing. in the head while fighting the North Koreans in the Congo, and he almost dies. But his men steal a plane and evacuate Bob to nearby Rhodesia for medical treatment and recovery. And while he's there, he marries a woman who bandaged his injury, whose name oh, I could not so find cute. out. <laughs> that's so adorable. <laughs> It gets less adorable as he keeps marrying women, but we'll get to that. Oh, dear God. So in 1967, even though he was still partially paralyzed and had lost all his vehicles when he was evacuated, he leads a hundred men on bicycles to invade the Congo to support (laughs) Dushambe in another Katanga uprising. A hundred dudes on bicycles just ride, like, doing a Rohirrim charge across a field. I'm just imagining, like, ghost riders in the sky playing as you have these hundred mercenaries on bicycles crossing the border. (laughs) Oh, God. Unfortunately, the surprise attack failed because they were, somehow, intelligence reached Mobutu's government, and they were ambushed and had to retreat. Probably oh. depressed that the bicycle invasion had failed, 
Denard decides that he's going to return to France yet again for a little bit of a little bit of a break. <laughs> a little bit of a space heater sale. Especially because he's still like partially paralyzed. He can't really walk very well <coughs> because the the, oh. the bullet to his head, you know, did did damage to his brain. Oh, oh! I, I guess I didn't. I didn't even ask how severe the wound was. Was it? Was it like? It was no. It was severe? yeah. It was life threatening. Like, and he he could have died, wow. but he survived. But he still had trouble walking. Oh man, well, that's gonna suck if you're gonna want to continue to be a mercenary. But it didn't stop him from literally getting on a bike and invading a country. So that's true. <laughs> so he did pretty well. Well, good. Yep. So. Almost uh, certainly with the unofficial backing of the French government, Denard decides to return to Africa after uh, after a couple years of R&R in France. Okay. And he gets this position as the advisor to Omar Bongo, who is the pro-French president of Gabon. And this is one reason why it's probable that this was done with the backing of the French government, because Omar was super into sucking up to the French government. And mm -hmm. so it's unlikely that he would have hired some random mercenary from France if it hadn't been recommended to him by the French government. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, And he would actually, Bob would hold this position for the next 10 years. But during that mm. time, he kept busy with all sorts of fun activities. He organized more efficient farming practices um, in Gabon, which is nice. Uh, mostly yeah. because, and he, he writes a little bit about this in a memoir... If he thought if he could raise if he could raise the material prosperity of the farmers, they would be less likely to be swayed by Marxist rhetoric. Interesting. So yeah, like Bob is Bob is an intellectual. <laughs> he also uh, goes to Mauritania to train and organize their presidential guard, and he works briefly for the Shah of Iran, who sneaks him into Kurdistan to fight in support of their war against Iraq. Okay, um, I'm starting to get some uh, Josiah Harlan vibes. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. He also, um, at one point, goes on some sort of mission to try to rescue the family members of the former king of Libya, who were being held. To it was crazy. Like it is so hard to, as I said, actually get a con concrete chronology of where Bob is at any given time. Because I'll be reading like two different articles, and one will have Bob in one place in a certain time, and another article will literally have him a thousand miles away at the same time. It's like I man. don't know where this man is. That's the multiple Bob theory. The multiple Haven't you heard Bob that? theory. Yeah, that's the one that Elon Musk is pushing alongside the simulation. Is the multiple Bob theory? <laughs> I mean, I believe it. So he's tra he also travels back and forth to France quite a bit and opens a car dealership in France in 1973. So he is okay. simultaneously the military advisor of a country in Africa, working around the world as a mercenary, and running a car dealership in France. I mean, priorities, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is multitasking at its finest. And Bob does yeah. this for several years. It's a good, it's, it's you know, it's a living. He's, he's doing fine. But in 1975... Yeah things start to get real. And okay. before we get into that, I think that would be a really good time to take a break and hear from Aaron for this week's honorable mention. Okay, well, <clears throat> I guess I guess we'll, we'll go into the honorable mention. I don't actually have the script for the intro, so I'm just going to pretend like I read it. Welcome to Honorable Mentions, the part of the show where we talk about little things that usually uh, 
well, little stories we like to tell we've read while doing our research that are really cool but too small to put into a full episode. And this week's subject is William Morgan. And I know you have no idea who that is, and I didn't either. Uh, I just, I'll tell you what, how, how to, this all, uh, this all uh, works out is that William Morgan's Wikipedia page has him labeled an anti-Mason. I discovered this story because I was getting sucked into another conspiracy theory hole about Freemasons. And then I read, uh, I was on Wikipedia trolling about, and I read about a, uh, a significant event that occurred in our country's history, in the United States country's, uh, country of the United States' uh, history. <clears throat> and I apologize if this is all just barely held together, because I'm barely holding it together. I've had a long week, I'm very tired. Um, but I'm gonna try to get this across at least halfway clearly and not fuck up half the details. Are you ready, George? Oh, I am so ready. Okay. So, I'll just get I'll just be quick. So, he was born in Culpeper, Virginia in 1774, just so you can envision envision this. I can envision so that way too well. I literally drive by there every week. Interesting. Um, so he was a bricklayer and a stonecutter um, and eventually a store owner in uh, Richmond. And there were rumors that he was he, he told people that he had a he became a captain during the War of 1812. Um, but there were, there's like a, a really thin record of him have, having served at all. So, um, which is to say that there, all the records of the area he claimed to have fought in, they have several William Morgans on the uh, rosters, but none of those William Morgans were actually captains. So he might've been lying just a little bit, but I mean, you know. who hasn't lied about their military service? Exactly. You know, everybody does it. Uh, so he would uh, end up on that East Coast area, you know, New York, around D.C., um, Rochester, Batavia. Um, and his, uh, he was described in, in uh, contem- or not contemporary, but uh, history books of the day, people recording this, uh, newspapers, all that stuff. Uh, he was a heavy drinker. He was a gambler. Um, but his friends argued against it. At this point, though, like, if the press is saying something about you, uh, you better wonder. Because <laughs> um, this is uh, this is the era of misinformation uh, post-war. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's still the era of misinformation. Yeah, I mean, I never said we were out of it. <laughs> oh. Hey! Okay, so here's another thing about this guy. So he got into he got into Freemasonry just like everybody else did back in the old days. I mean, 1776 could not have happened without the Freemasons. Let me tell you. And I'm sure I'm sure George has some opinions on Freemasonry in American history. Oh, a few, yes. a few. As we said, <laughs> you know, our our boy Josiah Harlan was of course a Freemason. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's literally the only way you can do anything that matters is to become a Freemason. It's the LinkedIn of its time. So one of the things I learned uh, while reading about Freemasonry was that there are 33 known levels uh, that you can achieve in the lodges, and that most people only get to level 3 at max, and then the really big boys get all the way up to level 33. Uh, and it takes years, and it takes crazy dedication, and if the conspiracy theories are to be believed, it also takes oaths to the old gods and uh, blood sacrifice and shit like that. Um, and Morgan... Uh, did all that. And at least, you know, according to him. Um, and it was never officially established that he was he was uh, a 33rd level 
Mason, but you can't really officially establish that uh, because the whole point is nobody, you don't want anyone to know, right? I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Um, but anyway, so either way, he was claiming he was level 33 and he was trying to go to lodges and he was like, yo, let me in, bro. I'm level 33. And they're like, what's level 33? <laughs> um, but he was starting to make some noise. People were starting to notice him because he was just going around claiming he was level, level 33. Um, some people were like, this guy's not even a Mason at all. And all the rest, and they wouldn't let him in. And he's like, it's just getting pissed off and drunk. And <laughs> so he writes this book and he's like, I am going to tell everyone what goes on at the top, and I'm going to tell the whole world. And, you know, they're going to know about the uh, the oaths to the to the gods of death and shit like that. They're going to know. And Can I make a prediction? Mason, yes. My prediction is that he lives a long and peaceful life and dies of natural causes. <laughs> uh, good one. Uh, <laughs> you want to bet? <laughs> So he he goes and he's like, I am going to uh, publish this book. And it was called Illustrations of Masonry. Um, and it was all, it had like all the secrets he'd picked up or whatever, or at least accusations he was making, you know, allegedly uh, that kind of shit. Um, so he had a, he had a actually earned an advance on this work. Um, and so he was, you know, he was already enjoying the financial boon that it brought. Um, and he was, uh, promised one quarter of the profits, uh, back from the purchased books. And so, uh, <laughs> hey, here's the problem. When you become 33rd level, uh, 33rd degree Mason, uh, you have to place your hands on a Bible. Actually, I think it's only third degree. I don't care because it's all magic bullshit wizardry anyway. At some point during your time as a mason, you have to put your hand on a Bible and swear you'll never reveal the passwords, um, the like what you have to do, the weird rituals, uh, and you know if because if you tell everyone about it, you are officially you officially have a uh, a uh, black spot. You can be killed by other masons. Okay, so it's kind of like the dean's list. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. He, uh, he was already printing this book, and he was getting copies ready for sale, and then uh, his, uh, his little bookshop um, burns down. Oh. Uh, his little, his, yeah, his new newspaper office, his print shop, it's just set fire in the middle of the night, and it's just gone. Um, okay, it wasn't actually gone, but it was, it was uh, there was a case of arson that was uh, counteracted. Oh, and here's something significant. So on September 11th, 1826, Morgan was arrested for supposed non-payment of a loan, and he was also arrested for stealing a shirt and a tie. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah. And so they send him, They were going to send him to debtor's prison, um, and he was going to go, but then somebody heard about it. I think one of his friends heard about it. was like, I'll buy that shirt and tie. I'll pay for that shit. Um, so he buys him his way out. So he's out of prison. He's free again. But he's almost immediately rearrested and charged uh, with failing to pay a $2 tavern bill, um, which was never proven to be an actual, like, thing. He was just a good excuse to put him in jail again. So then the jailer go, um, uh, <clears throat> is away, and his wife's the only person in the, uh, in the actual jail. And these men show up, and they're like, uh... Excuse me, madam, would you open that man's cell over there? We are very important dignitaries. 
And they probably then cast a black magic spell on her, and, you know, she transformed into a visage of Moloch and went over and blew the door open or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so they got him out of the out of the cage, and she was none the wiser. She was like, I assume these people are authorities. They probably were authorities, too. Um, so then they walked out to a carriage, and uh, it went all the way out to Fort Niagara, and then Morgan just disappears. Gone. Yep, just okay. gone. Yep. And so uh, the next month in October, eight, no, I'm sorry, the next year um, and a month after, so October 1827, a very badly decomposed body washed up on the shores of Lake Ontario. Um, and it was it was uh, essentially figured out that this was uh, our buddy William Morgan. And it was found out also that the... Uh, the um, here, let me make sure I get these facts straight. Um, there was an investigation into the murder. Um, the, uh, the sheriff of Niagara County was a Mason and he was removed from office and tried for his involvement in Morgan's disappearance. Ooh. And he was found guilty, uh, of, of, um, of, uh, killing this guy. And the sheriff only served 28 months in prison. Oh, and three other Masons, Loton Lawson, Nicholas Cheesebro, <laughs> Chessebro, uh, Edward Sawyer, were also convicted for taking part in the kidnapping, and they served sentences. Several other Masons in Batavia were tried and acquitted, and basically they got away with it scot-free. And the public press was looking at this case, and they were going, these Masons are doing some bullshit, and they're getting away with it. Uh, so this, all this spawns the anti-Masonic movement, which I had never heard before. Um, but it was led by, uh, Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. And they all got together and, and denounced these Masons, uh, together. Well, as well as Millard Fillmore. Um, and, uh, anyway, so that was a, that was an issue. That was a story I really wanted to dig into more. People have been encouraging me to do a, a, a Mason on the podcast and, I'm scared of it, so... Yeah, no, I've always been, um, I've always been very proud of the fact that my home county, uh, frequently during the, uh, mid-19th century, would vote for the anti-Masonic party in elections. That's so interesting. Because it's just not something you think about, you know? You don't hear anti-Mason very much anymore. Um... But yeah, so there was it. It spawned this whole movement, and I, like, people were running for presidencies based on the, uh just based on being anti-masonic and anyway so it was a secret society that they basically dropped him into a lake he drowned washed up a year later and every mason involved got away with it so there was just this big and that that's going to be kind of a rabbit trail so i'm going to i'm going to end honorable mentions there but i was just reading about that i'm like this this world is so fucked up <laughs> you got masons dropping people into lakes <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, this some bullshit. Mm -hmm. All right, so shall we get back to Bob? We shall. So when we uh, last checked in with Bob, it was 1975. He was uh, doing the circuit of running his car dealership, being a military advisor to the nation of Gabon, and just generally traveling the world, taking care of business. <clears throat> mm. So in 1975, the Comoros Islands, which is those are off the eastern coast of Africa unilaterally declared their independence from France under the leadership of President Ahmed Abdallah. Um, it's a, the population is 
entirely Muslim. Okay. Such rudeness could not be tolerated by Bob. Unilateral independence from France. <laughs> Give me a break. So he ta- he takes seven of his boys, and he flies in a little plane at night, lands on the island, marches up to the presidential palace, arrests the president, and replaces him with a different president named Ali Soyli, who was willing to play ball with France. <laughs> that sounds like the beginning of Air Force One. <laughs> Yeah, just can you believe that? Seven dudes, he just comes into the middle of the night and arrests the president of this country. That's amazing. So Bob wow. sticks around for a few months uh, training the Comoran army, uh, ordering around okay. the alleged president, uh, possibly marrying a local woman. It's uh, He definitely marries some later on in the story. It's unclear if he married anyone this at this point, but since the mm-hmm. Comoros was a Muslim uh, country, polygamy was perfectly fine. Um, okay. At the end of that year, after he's been there several months, he returns to his day job as the military advisor in Gabon and roams around Africa as a mercenary, as he does. But at some point yes. in that year, he was uh, approached by the CIA and paid a half mm. million dollars to gather together a mercenary group for some shenanigans in Angola. He's not actually participating in the shenanigans, I don't think. He's just, uh, he's the guy who puts together the the group. Um, So he's just, he's he's your go-to man if you want to get something done, basically. Gotcha. And so now he's working with the CIA, so that's, uh, things are about to get real weird, huh? Uh, yeah, the CIA doesn't really come into it much anymore, but yeah, things do get really weird. Um, okay. In 1977, <laughs> someone, probably the French government, decided that the African nation of Benin, which at that time was a Marxist-Leninist state, really had it coming. So who okay. do they obviously not hire to do something about it? Why, Bob, of course. Or rather, they hired Colonel Gilbert Bourgeaud, who is also Bob. And also not Bob. And also not Bob. So Bob makes (laughs) a plan, and he figures out that overthrowing the government should take three hours. (laughs) For real? Yes, he has a plan, and it's supposed to take three hours. So he loads up 91 mercenaries in a plane and flies from Gabon to Benin with an exiled politician from Benin who, who, who he intends to make the new president. Unfortunately, they were already an hour behind schedule due to their bus breaking down on the way to the plane in Gabon. So it's already not going well. They're behind this. They're behind the three-hour schedule. Okay. So um, as they land, they see a tank driving up the runway toward them. So with the plane still moving on the taxi, they throw open the side doors and everybody's jumping out. And Bob appears with a mortar, which he sets up right there on the pavement and on the second shot, successfully takes out the tank. Where did you find this shit? <laughs> Everywhere. Oh my god. Okay. Carry on. Yeah, you no, took out a tank. We, could, we could do a whole episode just about how I found information for this episode. Um, oh man. So after a brief gun battle, the soldiers at the airport surrender, and Bob establishes it as his HQ, and dispatches his men by three different routes to the presidential palace. The groups create a perimeter and begin mortaring the palace before advancing for an assault, but the president was not there as he had spent the night at a different house. So they don't capture him, and they are now stuck in a hostile city without their intended hostage. And Uh the army of Benin is finally starting to arrive, so the mercenaries begin a slow fighting retreat towards the airport, 
It gets faster as they go, however, as machete-wielding mobs begin to join the army in chasing them. And by the oh, time God. they get to the airport, they're all running as fast as they can. Bob is still at the airport, and he gives the order for the plane to take them all out of there. So and everybody's piling onto the plane. People are still running. So the plane is literally starting its taxi down the runway as men are still running alongside it and being pulled aboard. Like they're literally oh, boarding a moving plane. They finally make it into the air. But in the panic, they left behind the mortars and the heavy armaments and Bob's briefcase, which contained the plans, which is actually how we know that he calculated it would take three hours. Um, And the names and identities of associates, bank information, all sorts of confidential stuff. I think that briefcase is something you leave on the plane. Yeah, no, you would (laughs) you would think. But they only lost, I think, two men were two men from the group were actually killed in this. So in terms of human casualties, they actually got off without a lot of without a lot of uh, loss. But after this disaster at Benin, and of course with his credibility damaged by losing all that important information, um, Bob went back to France to run his car dealership and spend some time with his wife. The one he, the one he married after she patched him up after he was shot in the head by the North Koreans. Gotcha. So the only one they'd show in the movie if they ever made a movie about this guy. Yes, exactly. So he's, but he keeps making trips back to Africa to fight in various things. He fights in the Rhodesian Bush War for a while, but he does eventually give up his military advisor job with Gabon. I guess he just didn't want to be tied down anymore. And right, so he's just, he's, he's, he's pretty low-key at this point. He's running the car dealership, um, doing the occasional war, but not too much. But then, in 1978, he gets a call in France Uh-oh. from none other than Ahmed Abdallah, the, pre- the former president of Comoros that he had deposed in the coup. So the one who oh. declared independence and then Bob nay out of the presidency. As soon as I got out, they pulled me right back in. <laughs> Gives him a call and says he wants to meet him in Paris. So Bob okay. is like, what the hell? And he goes to Paris and meets with Abdallah. And Abdullah wants his country back, and he wants Bob to get it for him, despite the fact that Bob was the one who deposed him from it. Yeah, well, you, you get the man who you who defeated you to work for you. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it's ba- basically, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. It's like, who knows how to pull off a coup in Comoros? Why, the guy who already did it, of course. Yes! <laughs> so, um, since that first coup that had put Ali in charge, things haven't exactly gone well in the Comoros. Okay. It had started out fine. Ali was a socialist, but he was willing to play ball with France and not do anything too outrageous. But he decides he doesn't like the French anymore, so he bans the French language. Uh. Um, oh. <laughs> then he decides that he doesn't like his wife anymore. So he what? kicks her out and replaces her with three teenage girls. Oh, God. Come on, man. Then he decides that he is going to institute real communism. So he oh. nationalizes everything in this tiny country, and he destroys all the archives and books, since they were all in French. And he issues tons of verbose proclamations about the proletariat, and he fills the government with literal teenagers like he just pulls teenagers who are willing to spout communist rhetoric and like makes them the minister of such and such oh, that is classic commie bullshit then oh. he forms his own red guard who just kind of wander around wander around bullying people 
Oh, for fuck's sake. And he becomes an atheist an atheist, and starts banning religious practices. And now this is when it gets really good. He has speakers put up in every village in the country so that he could engage in Marxist dialectical discourse whenever he wanted, and everyone has to hear it. He literally had speakers in every village, and he would just get on the broadcasting station and just talk about his thoughts on Marxist dialectic for hours, and everyone in the country had to hear it. Ah, oh, that is disgusting. <laughs> you did this on purpose. I was done with communists. Then we had to go and watch Ali do it all over again in exactly the same bullshit ways it always isn't happens. That, isn't that amazing? And when he wasn't oh. when he wasn't talking, he would have that speaker system play the um, Camorran national anthem over and over again. And everyone had to immediately stop and come to attention when they heard it. And sometimes he would just, like, play it on a loop so the whole country had to stop and come to attention. Um, Their recording of it was actually pretty bad, so it often skipped between the second and third verses, according to some eyewitness accounts. God. (laughs) Literally a bad quality audio recording of your national anthem played over speakers in the whole country. (laughs) What year was this? This was nineteen seventy. Eight, I think we are at. Oh my god. They're learning from each other. They're all doing they're all following Mao and North Korea and uh, <laughs> So things <gasps> things aren't great. Um he also demanded that his name be inserted next to God's name in all Islamic prayers. Um and he sent troops into villages to enforce this and actually killed about a dozen people for refusing it. That is that's disgusting. And this is this is amazing. So he has a witch doctor who advises him. And after his witch doctor has a dream that a dog will kill him, that is Ali. Ali has all the dogs in the nation, probably about sixty thousand, killed. Every these fuckers dog. hate. They these they hate dogs. They hate Christmas. <laughs> They're like literally evil, like supervillains. So yeah, he literally. God damn it. Literally had all the dogs in the whole country killed because his witch doctor had a dream. Dog genocide because of some bullshit like that. So basically, Ali is nuts, and the country is kind of a mess. So this seems like a great opportunity for Ahmed to come back to power. Please. Like... Pretty, it's hard to think of something that is not going to be better than Ali and his dog-killing Marxist dialectic ways. You could put Kermit the Frog in power and you'd have a better time. I mean... Oh. So, Ahmed has some money, but he doesn't have a whole lot of money. He's an exiled president, so he can't finance it all himself. So... Bob mortgages his called his car dealership in order to fund the rest of their expedition. Oh my god. He calls in some favors to secure some good uh, officers for his group and then he takes out newspaper ads in a bunch of cities to fill the ranks. The ads say that they are looking for men with military background to survey oil resources abroad. <laughs> That's a funny code, that is. Yeah, um, and, but <laughs> people know what it means. They have over a thousand applicants, so he actually goes around city to city, like, holding an interview day, like a job fair. Um, he re- immediately crosses out anyone who seems to have any leftist leanings based on their That's conversation. Probably, probably wise, since they're taking over a 
Kami. Yeah, he's absolutely meticulous in choosing his men. Like, he has multiple stages of interviews and has all sorts of, like, metrics he's measuring people on. Like, he's very serious about this. And he eventually settles on 45 mercenaries who are French, German, and Belgian. And he buys a fishing boat and secures a contract with an Argentinian oil speculation firm to do surveying so that legally he has a reason to be going out on this boat and nothing is suspicious. <laughs> having learned, yeah, because having learned from the airport catastrophe in Benin, he decides they're not going to fly in. He decides a boat is better. Um, so with this whole thing set up, Bob, half the mercenaries, and one of the mercenaries' dogs all load uh -oh. up on the boat and set out from France, and they meet with the rest of the mercenaries on the Canary Islands. Oh, shit. And then Doggo's gonna get some revenge, man. They sail all the way over... So they've started from France. They sail all the way around Africa. Holy fuck. Because you have fuck. to get over to the eastern eastern side, and you're, they're, you know, keeping a low profile. So in this fishing boat, these 46 men and one dog sail all the way around Africa to invade an island nation. <laughs> so when they arrive, they um, they have these inflatable boats, and they land inflatable boats on the island in the middle of the night, and they start to advance up the hill to the palace. They have, excuse me, they have a few gun battles with guards. Um, Ali's chief torturer tries to run Bob over in a car, but Bob shoots him through the windshield, just like in a movie. And he, and he, you know, he swerves off the road dead. Um, yeah. But, um. Burst into flame. <laughs> yeah. So, not a huge amount of resistance. Bob takes half the group and enters the palace, capturing Ali with no guards, but with several half-naked women. Um, meanwhile, the other half takes the army barracks. And soon the entire island was totally in Bob's control. Because um, nobody really wanted to uh, do anything to protect Ali's government or lack thereof. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> so the streets are actually being filled with people celebrating the fall of Ali. Um, and Bob gets on the phone. There's like one telephone line out of the that can go out of the island. And mm -hmm. Bob obviously has, has his men secure it. He calls Ahmed and tells him that it's all done. And then Ahmed has this press release where he says that he was very surprised to receive a call from, you know, his former country of Comoros that they've toppled Ali and they want him to come back and he's going to do it. <laughs> this is, this is like, what's that meme? Uh, fuck, it's, it's, uh... <sighs> He, uh, why can't, see, you can, this is how tired I am. I can't even think of memes right now. Um, it's, it's the one, it's the greatest redemption arc or whatever, because he put, you know, Ali in power. Oh, yeah. Top 10 anime redemption arcs. Ta there it is, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, basically. Um, so with the island secure, and this is, this is great. This is great. The mercenaries decide to take the dog for a walk, not knowing anything about the whole massacre of the dogs and there being no dogs on the whole island. So seeing the mercenaries with the dog, the people proclaim that the prophecy of the witch doctor has been fulfilled because, you know, the man kills all the dogs because there's a vision that a dog's going to kill him. And then suddenly these motherfuckers land in boats in the middle of the night, topple the government, and are now taking this dog for a walk. And so you have literally thousands of people are just thronging the streets trying to watch this dog who's just, like, chasing seagulls and just having a fun time on the beach. And you literally have, like, half the country out there cheering for this dog. 
Wow. <laughs> I told you this was some crazy stuff. This is great. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, no, I, I was not able to find a picture of the dog, unfortunately. I tried, but oh, I would man. have loved to get a picture of the dog. Wow. So, after Ahmed arrives and takes up the presidency, Bob decides that, he, you know, he's going to settle in. He is going to settle in on Comoros. So he announces his conversion to Islam uh, from his alleged Judaism before. He takes mm -hmm. several wives, including Ali's wife. He marries Ali's wife. Um, oh, of course. He changes <laughs> his name to Mustafa Muhajil, and he becomes leader of the presidential guard. So Ahmed may have been president, but Bob was the king. And he drives around surveying the country in Ali's car that he has appropriated. <laughs> He took his wife. He took his car. <laughs> he brought a dog. <laughs> this guy's hilarious. Yeah, no, and people are wearing T-shirts with his name on them and his picture and some that just say Bob. Um, <laughs> and everybody knows who's really in charge. People actually start to refer to him colloquially as Sultan Bob. <laughs> that's, that's so good. So yeah, so Bob likes it there and wants to stay, and he tries to sort of fix the island country. Um, he tries to sort of get some infrastructure and trade and stuff, but it's very slow because the island is absolutely broke because right. France cut off their foreign aid after Ali went nuts. They were actually still giving foreign aid even after the country declared its independence, but then once Ali went crazy, they cut that off. Right. <laughs> Probably because they knew if they sent foreign aid, the Czech would have French on it and Ali would have to destroy it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the country's broke. Um, but Bob's trying to get it in a better state, but it's it's not it's not an easy job. Right. Ali languishes in prison for a while until he is eventually killed. Allegedly, the official story is that he was killed while trying to escape, but it seems more likely that either Ahmed or Bob decided they were going to go ahead and just shoot him. Um, My money's on Bob. Because, uh, let's face it, Ali kind of had that coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So <laughs> He killed all the dogs! Due to the whole name in prayer incident, the Muslim clerics of the nation deny him a Muslim funeral, but his mother buries him in their front yard and holds a little Muslim funeral of her own, and she pours a cement marker over the grave, and someone tries to write his name in the wet cement, but misspells it. <laughs> Is that That's, not the most ignominious Ed you've ever heard? Literally returning to his mom's basement. <laughs> I just love the fact that the name was misspelled, too. That, yeah. That really... <laughs> R.I.P. in peace, Ali. <laughs> you crazy, crazy man. <laughs> so after several months of Bob ruling the country, uh, France decided that it was kind of a bad look in the post-colonial period to have a French mercenary literally ruling a country in Africa. So they told Ahmed that Bob couldn't rule the nation and they had to, they had to deal with that and make it so that Ahmed at least appeared to be the real ruler. Mm -hmm. So they have this grand ceremony at the airport to mark Bob's retirement from power. Ahmed awards Bob the title of Hero of the Nation and the crowds cheer and weep. And Bob gets on a plane and leaves back to France. But everybody knows he's not going to be there all the time. He's going to come back. He has three or four wives on the island. 
Um, so he's obviously not gonna not gonna leave permanently. He maintains an active presence on Comoros, uh, traveling back and forth from France, and also uses it as a base of mercenary activities and for um, arms smuggling to Rhodesia during the during the whole Rhodesia, the fall of Rhodesia, because they were under an embargo. He would he would allow Comoros to be a, an importation point where he would he would order huge amounts of weapons with of course their importation marks that they were going to Comoros, which there's no embargo there, and then he would right. in turn hand them over to the Rhodesians. So he had lots of business running through Comoros. He's uh, not exactly a car salesman anymore, is he? No, no. I mean, they, that's good. I wonder if he ever like paid off that mortgage and reclaimed the dealership. I, I don't think he had to. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of person you don't go chasing after for money. True. So in 1989, um, it's very, very unclear how this all goes down. But it's clear that throughout the years, Bob and Ahmed are getting a kind of strained relationship with Bob still exercising so much control and basically still controlling the presidential guard, even though he's right. officially out of power. So Ahmed orders the presidential guard to be disarmed, probably hoping to end Bob's power that way. And something happens and soldiers open fire within the presidential palace. Bob is injured and Ahmed is killed. No one knows what really happened. Some people think that Bob had his men kill Ahmed and some of them tried to defend him. And that's how Bob got shot. Others think that Ahmed tried to take out Bob and that Bob's people fought back. No one really knows what happens, but Bob is injured and the president is dead. My God. So Bob leaves the island and is taken into custody by French paratroopers and brought back to France, where he is put on trial for killing Ahmed. But the case falls apart because no one really knows what happens and there's no real clear evidence that what happened. So they can't, you know, convict without any actual, you know, narrative of what happened. No case. (laughs) Yeah. Excuse me. Just a suspect. Yeah. Hmm. So... During the trial, though, another coup happens on Comoros that Bob is not involved with. It's uh, a lot. But during Bob's lifetime, um, or rather during the uh, during the, this time period of the 20th century, I think there were 20 coups on Comoros. So mm. it happens a lot. Um, Bob tries to move back to Comoros after this last coup. Um, and five of, since five of his wives live there, uh, we believe he had eight at this point. But... The newest president refuses to let him in. Ah. That president ah. dies soon after, and Bob <laughs> Bob was suspected. But oh, the official autopsy returned the result that it was natu- it was natural causes, and nobody really wanted to mess with that. But there was a s- definite suspicion at the time that Bob took him out because he was so offended that he wouldn't let him move back to the island to be with his five wives. You know, I wouldn't put it past him. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if we know anything about Bob. (laughs) So, Bob continues to live in France and run his various business ventures and have the odd war until 1995, when he's getting old and he's starting to experience Alzheimer's symptoms. Oof. Yeah, it's sad. Bob is getting old. And he decides he really wants to go back to Comoros or Comoros, 
Like one, you know, he wants to see it again because that's really where he wanted to sort of live his life. Um, it's where five of his wives are, and he really liked it there. So as he's getting old and starting to get Alzheimer's, he wants to go back one last time. So he puts together a group of 30 mercenaries, lands on the island, and the people and the army basically uh, greet him like Napoleon returning. Are you familiar with that story? No. It's the first time Napoleon returned from Elba, the French government sent the army to intercept him and his followers, and... You know, they're there, it's this tense standoff, there's Napoleon and his little group, and then there's like the whole French army, and Napoleon just walks out in front of everyone and says, are you going to shoot your emperor? And then the whole army joins him. (laughs) Wow. And then they march on Paris and he takes back the government. Um, Oh God, we gotta cover Napoleon sometime. Yeah, so that's basically what happened. The army and the people are all excited that Bob is back. Um, And so they (laughs) greet him and join him. Uh, you know, and within hours, he's in full control of the country. He establishes a new civilian government and raises a, uh, a new army, fortifies the islands, since he's expecting that the French are going to try to launch an invasion to topple him. He yeah, is no correct, shit. and massive French forces enter the area and start seizing islands held by Bob's supporters. Knowing that he is outnumbered, since the French have battleships helicopters, planes, artillery, and whatnot. Bob surrenders uh, in order to save the lives of his men, since he knows it's going to be an absolute massacre if he tries to resist. Wise move. So he is arrested and taken back to France, where he spends 10 months in jail before being freed by the intervention of friendly government officials who were somehow able to make it all go away. Um, Once again, it's unclear throughout all of this how much of this Bob was doing with the direct sort of pre uh, foreknowledge of the French government. <laughs> Probably mm-hmm. a lot. And stuff like this indicates that he's, you know, he's very well politically connected. That he's, you know, yeah. getting freed after 10 months in prison after invading an island nation. Or he's just a Freemason. <laughs> oh! <laughs> but in 2001, he is tried for attempting to recruit an Italian far-right group to help him invade (laughs) Comoros for another time. (laughs) But he is not convicted, I think just because they felt bad, because he's old and has Alzheimer's, and he just wants to go back to his island nation and be Sultan Bob again. Wow. So he's not convicted. And then in 2006, they actually put him on trial again for the coup of 1989, and sentenced him to five years in prison but due to his Alzheimer's and generally poor health they suspend the prison sentence so he doesn't have to go Um, during these last years of his life Bob actually converts back to Catholicism um, from Islam and lives the last few years in the uh, the faith he grew up in 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 his youth as a Roman Catholic and finally on October 14th 2007 Bob dies uh, from complications from both the Alzheimer's and he had some heart issues. Wow. <laughs> well, that's that's a, that's kind of an anticlimactic ending. He's the type of guy who deserved to go out in a rain of gunfire, you know? I know. <laughs> I mean, this is a man who, you know, got shot in the head by the North Koreans. <laughs> yeah. He's the man who killed the top torturer in a communist <laughs> regime as he was driving, driving in a it, Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely insane like this guy's life um and it's funny because when i was researching this i found a document 
from the UN Security Council about how dangerous Bob is, and at one point they even referred to him as the man who would be king, which is, of course, Josiah Harlan was the basis for Kipling's story, the man who would be king. So that's mm. a connection I didn't even know when I started researching this. That's amazing. <laughs> Dude... I'm going to put that song at the end again. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's really incredible that um, he's just kind of uh, doing his thing. Like, de- the whole period of decolonization was so crazy that you could literally just have these uh, sort of freelance guys who just went around fighting in wars, occasionally ruling small countries, and they all, you know, they all sort of... Uh, Knew each knew who each other were. So like at yeah, at one point, um, I think when the bicycle invasion, I think he was his plan had been he was supposed to meet up with a different Belgian mercenary he knew, and they were supposed to go together to help the rebellion in Katanga. But it's like it's just this weird network of all these guys who know each other and are just you know all involved in these wars, and sometimes they're on the opposite sides in the wars. It's a yeah. it's sort of a weird group. I was thinking about that because I was like, this is a type of person that I don't know if I've ever met in my life. Like these maverick alpha types who are just like, I'm going to just do what I want. Um, and I'm going to jump all over the place and do whatever I have to do in order to, you know, um, essentially make the most of the situation I find myself in. So like, you know, a Quaker who, you know, started acting like a, an Afghan warlord with Josiah Harlan and they... Uh, you know, Roman Catholic who became Jewish, who became uh, Muslim, just, you know, sort of like worked within, I don't, like whatever it took to like get cohesion within, you know, the country they were trying to find uh, power in. And it is so interesting. I'm wondering if there's like something to it. Like there's like a warrior spirit or something that's just in some people where they just aren't satisfied with, you know, selling space heaters. Yeah. No, and uh, oh, another thing I forgot to mention is that um, it is thought that um, Bob is, if not the inspiration, then a major inspiration for the novel Dogs of War, which was a really popular novel in the 70s about mercenaries in Africa. And it's believed that it's based at least partly on Bob. I think it would have to be. I mean... I think oh, it would that's, definitely well, no, see, that's the crazy thing is that Bob is not unique. There are literally a couple dozen people with careers like Bob's. Um, I, really? Bob is probably the craziest one just because of his obsession with a tiny, poor island country uh, that he yeah. keeps going back to. But no, there are. And, and it's it's funny because they're sort of like what you were mentioning about the this type of person. I think that's true. But at the same time you get very, very different personalities. Like, um, another one of the, uh, big mercenaries, what was his name? Sorry, give me one second. I know I wrote it down, but I can't remember what his name was. I'm not even going to cut this out. I'm just going to let people wait. (laughs) It's the, um, the leader of that uh of a mercenary group the wild geese the one that that movie is it's the uh because they were the other group along with bob's group that was fighting in that uh that rescue mission gotcha and Uh the guy's name is john no michael that's it michael how uh hour i'm not sure h-o-a-r-e 
Um, he, he's, he's called Mad Mike, and he has a very similar career, actually, to our boy Bob, but a completely different personality. Like, he is sort of super, super, like, sober about everything. He's, like, has one wife. He's married for 60 years. Like, he has a, just a completely different personality and approach to everything. But they have pretty much the same career trajectory in Africa of, do, of engaging in all these wars. Interesting. So, I'm sure there are people like that out there today. Right? Um, definitely, um, they're not, I mean, this is going to sound callous, but they're not cool anymore, because they're almost all multinational corporations now. Um, yeah, private military companies, they're all multinational corporations, it's all these weird, faceless companies, it's not really like, like, if you were, say you wanted, you were in an African country, and you wanted to have a rebellion in the 80s, you would know, oh yeah, but I'm gonna find a way to contact Bob Denard and hire him for this. Like, you don't right. really have, like, these big personalities anymore. It's all just faceless corporations. Once again, yeah, corporations we, have ruined everything. We do live in a cyberpunk technocracy. It's getting kind of obvious at this point. <laughs> it's it's like the beginning of, a, of one of those uh, cyberpunk movies from the 80s. 1999. <laughs> Multinational corporations rule the earth. Governments have been abolished. You know that kind of shit. Fascinating stuff. Um, no, it 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 was it was wild. It was absolutely yeah. wild. And putting it together was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For everybody out there, uh, George was texting me. He just he needed more time because he kept finding more shit. <laughs> And, like, half of it's in French, which I read very slowly, and other stuff I could only find in, like, really poor audio recordings of interviews made in French in the 70s, and I'm trying to, like, listen and pause it and listen again and, like, extract the little bits of information I need. It, it was wild. Wow. That's, like, full investigative journalist. Yeah, you no, should, like, it was crazy. Write this, you should write this up and sell it as a story to, like, the New York Times. Like, just do it. Make yourself a little money. I mean, this is, um... He, Bob wrote an autobiography. Uh, I don't think... It's not been translated into English. And it's also, you know, probably not necessarily unbiased, being that it's autobiography. But other than that, he's he's treated briefly in a couple of other books, but no, there are no real books about him. And they're mo mostly you find news articles from his, when he died, and there's, you know, like a one-page article that does a highlight reel of his career, but there's really not very much actually written about this guy. Yeah, I, I believe it. Because, you know, nobody cares about that, you know, a tiny little island that had its own little communist dictator for a little while. And that's, but that's where the good shit is. It's in the little places. Uh, I, that's uh, that's definitely one lesson I've, I've learned with this show, is that just covering big people can get a little boring, um, but covering people like our our guy Bob, <laughs> <laughs> endlessly entertaining. Whew. Well, I uh, I think I woke up a little bit halfway through that. Um, I mean, you better have. That was some exciting stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's time to head to the surface because I got to get this thing into the editing machine, and so we can get it out on time. So absolutely. Well, off we go!
George, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Well, I think I'm going to revise a paper, I'm submitting to a conference, do some laundry, and listen to nostalgia music from 2012. What about you, Aaron? I'm going to edit this episode and go to bed. Because <laughs> we, we literally put it off to the last minute this time, and that was out of necessity because we wanted the story to be the best it could be. Um, and we, also... We, li- we live dangerously, like Bob. Yeah, we do. This this is an 11th hour uh, podcast for you. So, um, yeah... I think it's time, though, to bring this show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, or a communist. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. You can also visit visit us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter has been... I've been avoiding it. I just don't... I I feel better when I'm not on it. But uh, you can DM us on there or on Facebook, and we'll get back with you. Uh, And you can also message us on SoundCloud if you prefer that route. Uh, we love feedback uh, and appreciate everybody who who drops their their opinions in our uh, our DMs. Our cover art was created by the uh, by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of an island paradise play you out. Pour une raison inconnue et ouvert le feu très maturément, ce qui provoqua la réaction des gardes.